0: PR has changed and you're starting to get clients that want this one service, one stop shop type of approach of, can you do everything from evaluating our messaging to bringing it to market, to rebranding, whatever it is.
1: pharmaceutical technology presents the drug solutions podcast where the editors will chat with industry experts from across the pharmaceutical and biopharmaceutical supply chain join us as experts share insights into your biggest questions from the technologies to strategies to regulations related to the development and manufacture of drug products this is the drug solutions podcast
2: Hi, I'm Chris Spivey, Editorial Director for FarmTech, FarmTech Europe, and BioFarm International. Today, we're going to have a lot of fun talking with Beth Willis, Principal, White Matter Communications, Deborah Harsh, President and CEO, Brandwidth Solutions, and Kevin McCarthy, Senior Manager, Orientation Marketing, all industry legends. We're going to discuss industry trends alongside considerations for choosing the right PR agency to work with, and how getting your message out has changed and become more challenging despite or perhaps because of the proliferation of powerful new communications and social marketing tools. This episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast is sponsored by Societal CDMO, a contract development and manufacturing organization partner with locations on both coasts of the USA. Societal CDMO offers capabilities spanning pre-investigational new drug development to commercial manufacturing and packaging for a wide range of therapeutic dosage forms, primarily focused on small molecules. So thank you to Societal CDMO. Now let's move to the interview. So what we'll do is we'll start out with just a quick lightning round of buy, hold and sell for the six areas that I personally picked as being important for 2026. We'll start off with mRNA beyond vaccines. So Deb, buy, sell, or hold?
3: Um, I would buy. mRNA vaccines have definitely, besides the vaccines, have come into their own. I'm seeing a lot of activity around applications besides the vaccines, but also about cancer drugs and therapeutics, and so I definitely think it's a buy.
2: Thank you. With?
0: Uh Same. I mean, you look at their potential and, and what they can do and what you can overcome. Uh, the problem, obviously, going to be your your dosage volumes you need to get to those therapeutic indications and the technology really stands in the way so buy but also realize that there's further to go (laughs) you
2: know a lot further, actually okay yeah a lot
0: further to go we're just we're we're like at the tip of the iceberg right we're trying to make technologies that exist work for this but we really need to get technologies that are made exactly for this and, and we're not quite there
4: kevin yeah, I'm gonna agree in the sense that I think the additional applications that they're looking at again. I think the first one wasn't without controversy. So it'd be interesting how from the perspective of the public, you know, they're they're accepted. But I think the technology is there for these other applications that may even be, you know, even a better and more efficacious sort of fit for the technology. Perfect. Thank you, guys. Orgel on a trip. <clears throat> Deb, Deb.
3: I want to say that it, it's a hold. It's early stage biotechs are working on these models and to supplement the animal testing, which I think is a good thing. I think uh, this uh, in our environment we don't want to do any animal testing if we can avoid it. There are example, there are companies that have developed chips that mimic the heart muscle, the liver tissue, tumor tissue, artificial blood vessels. So I think it's definitely a coming technology. I just don't think it's a buy just yet. I think it's definitely a hold.
2: Fair enough, Beth.
0: You know. I'm an animal lover, and uh, it's always been the thing that's been the hardest for me. I would say it's a buy just because of the the payout that you can get on the back end. So not only are you eliminating what I feel there's an emotional debt here that we don't need to talk about, but I think you're also eliminating that financial debt. And it can be a really big difference of you know how much cheaper the process can be. And I think that the world will just feel better about it. So I'd say buy, but only if you have money to spend, right? This isn't something that this isn't something that you would be dumping all your money in if it's you don't already turn. know. Yeah, this isn't a quick turn. We're not like you know one year away from it. We're you know maybe a couple of years. I don't know what that looks like, but it's something that I think. I mean, I'm very inspired by. I would
2: love to see this happen. Well, that's a clever point,
4: Kevin. Yeah, I think I think this. I think by it just in the sense in the long term, this is something that as we said, if we can get rid of animal models would be great. I think it helps. It looks like the technology currently could help, but I can't replace it entirely at this point. But I think it's, you know, there's other benefits to speed and specificity that you, you gain from it that you don't necessarily get with an animal model. So I think as long as it keeps developing the technology, it may get us there. And there may be, I think it'd be big cost benefits and, and time benefits going forward if it's developed very well that it, it applies. Perfect.
2: Next one, artificial intelligence and machine learning. And before you go, Deb, I will say I've been a long-term skeptic. and only slowly warming up to it. So, Deb.
3: So for me, this is a bye-bye-bye. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, AI fits into every part of the drug development workflow. Um, it's not just discovery and screening, but data, image quality, uh, making uh, data predictions, figuring out even supply chain issues. It takes a load off of manual labor. So it enables scientists to do science instead of lab management. And there's potential to predict how cell cultures and experiments will go. It's being used in hospitals currently to take care of pathology reports. They had an article recently, I want to say as early as last week, about using it in the operating theater. So this, to me, is a huge buy. It's ready. We have clients playing in the space. So this is a big buy.
2: Buy with a capital B. Bet the yeah, file. buy
3: with a capital B. There's a lab of the future. Digital transformation is the whole kit and caboodle of this. Same. I mean, I think that this is a
0: lot of where the future is going. If we can learn, this is the first industry that I ever worked in that the word redundancy was not something negative, right? Like you want that reliability. You want that redundancy. And that comes from my small molecule days. But as we move forward into biologics and these advanced models, I mean, we really need to be able to learn from what has happened before. And the only way you're going to do that is with these machine models. I think also that ties back to like, you know, organ on a chip. I mean, all of these things are kind of related in a certain way where we're using technology to eliminate a lot of this human error. I don't think we'll ever completely eliminate humans. And I, I think that would be a sad world if we did. But I think we can get rid of the risk and the the really like the quality dangers that come from maybe somebody's too tired or maybe something, you know, they missed it by a minute or an hour or whatever it is, depending on your process, Um, you can get past a lot of this and and then just go into stuff maybe 50% already knowing what you're doing.
2: Uh, You guys have great perspective, Kevin.
4: Yeah, I, I think it's a I think it's definitely a buy. It's one of these things that's kind of come up. I think it's developed very, I mean, it's been ongoing for a long time, but I mean, the the advances of late have been really fast. It's now at a point where even for creative endeavors, they're using AI and it's not horrible. I mean, you look at the, the different applications for it. So across all industries, not just in the, the biomedical space, there's huge applications for it and it'll continue to get better because it really represents a, a collective manifest of Humanity's best information together and again eliminating some of the errors how it meshes with the human spirit and humanity in itself will be the interesting part of how we go forward with it but uh, I think the uh, the benefit potential benefits are, are massive active area so
2: next one quality management maturity this is a big push by the FDA this is an area farm tech and biopharm is covering so QMM Deb
3: you know, this is really central to drug development and regulatory aspects of GMP and GOP, et cetera. But the key to this is management has to get, senior management has to get on board, not only to spend the money, but to put the processes in place and stick to them. They to date have not really done that very well. We have contract manufacturers that are on spreadsheets when limbs has been around for decades. I mean, and you see This would quality management systems would get help get rid of some of these 483s that don't need to be there, but it's clear that it's a senior management push they've got to get behind it they've got to, you know, you can't just train people you've got to put the processes in place and spend the money.
2: Beth. You're nodding. Yeah,
0: I have a big capital B on this one. You know, quality is like the whole cornerstone of our <laughs> industry. And I think we're seeing a call right now happening in biotech and, you know, I feel bad obviously that people are losing jobs, but a lot of this stuff should have never gotten as far as it did. Um, a lot of this stuff was really super conceptual and they didn't have good data, but they were going on, you know, these tiny little things and money was just flowing. people, you know, were making it rain that's not how it's going to be. And I think that COVID really helped us even out and now say, okay, what have we learned? What can we standardize? And it really does come down to, I mean, as we're all you know marketers, different ways on the phone, um, trying to get executives to spend money on that and spend money on quality are always challenging. And they are the two most fundamental things to your business.
3: Yeah.
2: And I just, I don't understand why you wouldn't. Yeah. It's just, it makes sense. No brainer. Kevin?
4: Yeah, I think it's definitely a buy. I mean, one of the things you see that's different about uh, your biomedical space is there's always a drive. There's always a, a, a mix between driving to make money and make the company profitable and then providing health and benefit for, for patients, et cetera. The difference is that people's lives are at stake. So it's a, it's the stakes are so much bigger. And I do see sometimes there's a, a split within company management. Historically, like you know, 20, 30 years ago, especially you'd feel it more of the uh, the drive for the financial side versus, and they kind of isolate quality as being a necessary evil that kind of slowed down production, didn't get things out. I think if they take an, this integrated more approach uh, as part of this regulatory push, it's gonna make things better. They will find ways to make it more efficient and could be even cost beneficial for them in the long run. And I, I've i seen cases where they you have problems with quality and you don't have a product at all. So you have zero revenue. So taking a more integrated approach, if it avoids those kinds of situations, puts a company probably in a better financial place, and it delivers that benefit to helping the people that, at the end of the day, we're trying to all help.
2: Yeah, and to Beth's point, these things are somewhat interrelated. Martin Van Trist talks about AI machine learning as quality comes along for free, so... Next one, viral vector yield. This is such a hot topic. Yeah,
3: and a big buy with a capital B. Yeah. Um, you know, you have cell and gene therapy is a very hot topic right now. And it's a field that's maturing and expanding at a, at a very fast rate, but it's very slow. It's a, it's causes a bottleneck. And there's only two right now. There's only two methods to doing it. Uh, they had that drug FDA approved the drug for hemophilia last year mm-hmm. using that viral vector. But the price tag is $3 million. And a lot of that comes down to the cost of manufacturing. There's only two ways of doing it, and the gold standard is the uh, transient method and trans- transient transfection, I should say. But the the key to this is it's the key to this is you got to get you got to make it faster, and you've got to make it more cost effective and more reliable with higher yields. Also, there's no standardization, so the FDA is stuck in the middle of no standardization. So every time they go to the FDA, everybody's process is different, and that causes a problem. There's some companies working on a hybrid approach both the process to provide a higher yield and uh, scalability.
2: Yeah, gene editing is one that could have made this list, but didn't because in 2026, I'm not sure we'll have enough uh, have enough uh, impact. Uh, Beth?
0: You know, so I'm going to take a different approach to this. I'm going to say hold, but just because there's so much money in it right now, and Deb makes a really good point, right? We're literally arguing with, with two different methods right now, and neither one of them is that great. So I think you're seeing a lot of companies looking in, how can we, how can we improve the yield here, but is there a way to get around this as well? Right. So you've got these like two prongs happening. And so like I, I work with PolyPlus, you know this, um, and they are traditionally transfection, but what they're investing in is different delivery methods and really kind of like changing that upstream process economics approach which I think even five years ago, you wouldn't have seen from a company in transfection. So the needle is moving. And just because I can't really say which way I think it's going to go, I would, I just kind of like watch and maybe see what happens. Mm -hmm. Um, But also definitely there's a lot of money in this space. So Deb is right. Um, I just tend to be more (laughs) risk-averse.
4: Nice. Kevin? I'd probably take a cautious buy in in the same sense that I don't think it's been... Sort of a definitive direction on it, and in, in which way we're going. But I, I think That's you know, amazing. yeah. So I think I think the uh, you know if they can do it again, one of the the challenges with a lot of these products is the cost and the the time it takes to make them. So if if they can find ways to standardize, it'll reduce costs and and make these processes quicker and hopefully more affordable at the end of the day for for patients, et cetera. So cautious by.
2: Yeah, and actually it's timely. We have an article coming out February about uh, Exuma, the company, and Organisys, another one with a different approach again. So you're right, something you can't ignore, but there may be better methods bubbling around to the surface. Last one, near patient manufacturing. So Deb?
3: This topic has come up quite a bit. It came up at uh, DCAT week last year about bringing medicines closer to patients, especially in places where manufacturing is pretty far away. To me, this is a cautious buy, because um, while people are working on it, they're talking about taking seaworthy containers and turning them into uh, basically manufacturing plants. You've got single-use manufacturing procedures that make the cleaning in between runs, especially for vaccines, quicker. You get more choices. To me, this is definitely a cautious buy.
2: Beth?
0: Same. You know, I think this is another one. If you've got money to spend and you've got time to hold, then I would go there. You know, you mentioned Orgenesis. They have been doing this for a while. You know, gcon has been doing the pods for a while. We know that this model can exist and work. But again, we go back to what we we're talking about with mRNA. The technologies aren't quite there yet. Do you have the right size bioreactors? Do you have the analytics that you need? Can you put a whole process chain in a container? Basically, yes, you can. But can that scale to the point that the patient needs? How do you move those containers around? There's a lot of logistics, and especially when you look at global networks, it's overwhelming. Um, but I definitely think that this is a, a key to the future. It, it does it does definitely feel like at some point we might have a little box next to the bedside in the the hospital and they're just making whatever you need right there. We
2: how need long is
0: right. <laughs> you know, like, how long is it going to be? I don't know, but it does. It seems very optimistic to me. But again, this is not a short place.
4: No. Yeah. Kevin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think one of the interesting parts of this is that we've kind of gone from a more decentralized model to a very centralized, even global manufacturing in a single site. Then we've seen the challenges that go along with that, as well as I think it's kind of a, a this whole near patient manufacturing really depend on personalization of medicine. And then the other side is how do you regulate it again? When we've got one big site that they can regulate globally, and then you start dispersing them much more locally, how how do you maintain that level of control? And again, there's things like AI, IT systems that you can use for monitoring in real time and those types of things. So I think there's going to be an integration of technologies that need to happen to make this actually viable. But I see there's there's elements like these these. Uh, module uh, modular sort of buildings that they they can move around and things that they're starting to move in that direction. But again, there's there was that shift from sort of even batch manufacturing to continuous manufacturing. And it's a big shift for everybody because they get established and there's the FDA wants these things, they say, but then how do they regulate it? And they're taking a risk by approving some of these new ideas. And if there turns out to be a problem and they've approved it, it becomes a challenge for them. So it's always the industry is going to be cautious if there's that that you know, duality and risk for them as well. But I think if it benefits a patient, this decentralized idea, if they can maintain control and, and the quality levels would be uh, amazing for patients. Uh, I guess more... the
3: sense too, I'm sorry, Go ahead. that really meant for places where they're not close to healthcare. Yep. It's not meant for New York, Philadelphia or <laughs> Massachusetts. It's meant for perhaps sub-Saharan countries or Nigeria or whatever countries that need medicines closer to home. Yeah. I don't get the sense it's really meant for, for, for
2: you know. Ag- agree. On top of that, another layer is some of these patients have exhausted their resources and also their biology. They're like really hanging on by a thread and so to get things more quickly to them. And I've got to give props to the FDA. A lot of these topics, the FDA has been very forward in putting themselves on, out on a limb and I'm super impressed with that. And they've engaged and they're asking for opinions, so. And I, I'm not trying to suck up to the FDA, although I occasionally do. I really truly believe that they're trying their level best to sort of keep up with progress. And this goes back to my days in biotech more than two decades ago now, where a lot of the individuals I meet with the FDA were genuinely trying their level best to keep up with the science. And it's just not an easy task, especially when you're specialized. Okay.
0: You don't see, I've never seen anything like Peter Mark. He's Peter Marks is just out there talking, he's everywhere. He's so ingrained he's so involved it's so it feels weird to me to have that much access I and I've been here what 11 years. I've never seen that much before maybe I just didn't notice it but yeah it's very well, cool.
2: Well he's a special dude as well. All yeah. right. uh, <laughs> New session, let's have the audience understand each of you and your agencies a little better. So I'll, I'll set this up with, are you a coach, a resource, a creative inspiration, a connector, a battering ram, a secret source, <laughs> an authoritative stakeholder? How do you see yourselves? And I'll start first with you, Deb.
3: Okay. So I think we see ourselves, but not only as a PR agency, writing press releases, because I don't know that that helps our clients get where they need to be. And they don't have a million press releases. And if the press release has nothing that the press wants to talk about, it's got zero value, right? So we try to, we see ourselves as a media engagement powerhouse, building relationships with the press, providing great content for them, as well as for our clients. We do more through thought leadership than press releases. And we think of ourselves more of a connector I don't ever want to call myself a battering ram. <laughs> I don't think that we want to be seen as that. But we're also coached, you know, looking at them. And a lot of our clients, we do all of their marketing with. So we can see things more holistically. We can see areas that they're not talking about that they should be talking about. I mean, I think last year we did over 27, 30 thought leadership pieces. And it's really about showing their expertise and how they work.
2: Ideal. Thank you, then, Beth? Uh, Beth? Oh, uh, did you name your agency? Ah,
3: sorry, Brandwith
2: Solutions. (laughs) Beth?
3: Yes. So uh,
0: I own White Matter Communications. Um, It's a small little outfit, you know, in this industry. I've I've done something a little bit different in that um, I kind of sell myself, (laughs) if that makes any sense, and all of the things that you listed on there, including the battering ram sometimes. I think that for me, I've realized that kind of to Deb's point, what clients need has changed and how people... PR has changed. And you're starting to get clients that want this like one service, one stop shop type of approach of, can you do everything from evaluating our messaging to bringing it to market to rebranding, whatever it is. So my whole thing is I'm the center point and we just flex to what they need. So I have vendors that I work with that I, I really know and love, honestly, and I can rely on them. If I hand them something, it gets done. There's no micromanagement. So. My model's very different in that it either goes up or down. And I really only have a small book of business uh, very much in the supplier sector. I really like that space. Um, and it's been fun because, you know, I've got to watch the industry completely evolve. i started in small molecule. Now here I am doing cell and gene, which I sounds like science fiction, right? You know, this industry <laughs> always has something new to give you. So that's that's about me. Awesome, thank
2: you, Kevin.
4: Yeah, that's uh, so. I'm with uh, Orientation Marketing, so we're based originally in the UK, and we've got an office in uh, Finland now in the EU, and we've got a, me at the Canadian office here. So we're really focused on sort of life science and pharma, primarily on the services side. That's a lot of our background. One of the things we found as an agency, I mean, in helping people, it's it's really been focused on a lot on content. And again, these these different roles that you listed, coach and resource and battering ram, really depends on. On the customer and the customer needs we have some customers that are very much less developed and they sometimes need to here's the structure and here's what we need to do. Other ones know what they want and we help them to try and guide them through, you know, the nuance of specific areas to help them. But I I agree with some of the others that that sort of integrated, they're not coming and saying, I just want PR. There's a lot more connectivity between all the different things that a traditional sort of agency would do. But we find it all kind of stems from content and getting people to, to help them generate content is the biggest challenge we find with a lot of customers. And then getting that out there to the right people and we use the right partners. Again, we're um, really focused on this area. So we're not a huge agency. Uh, when I worked in uh, pharma and head of marketing, uh, in different roles. We we would, you know, get agencies in, but they didn't really have a technical background. And it makes it very hard to have that discussion. So we ended up writing and doing a lot of the content generation ourselves, and they couldn't really help us with that. So that's one of the focuses of the agency is to, to be that um, they don't have to teach us the basic science, you know, so that we can help them move along in the, in the space. We've already got that part of it down. Can
0: I do a cautionary statement just to pick up on that? When these companies go and look for the agency, please, please, please do make sure if they need to have the industry experience that they actually have it. There's a lot of agencies. And Deb, I I know you're dealing with this like I am. Healthcare, med tech, it's not the same. And I I understand that there are similarities, but it is not the same. When you're dealing with drugs or the suppliers for the drugs, you're highly regulated. It's completely different than dealing with doctors, nurses, pharmacies. Mm-hmm. So really vet the agency. It really matters. I, either that or you're going to teach them for two to six months and hope that they get it. Yeah,
3: And I think for us, I mean, everybody on this call, I think what our clients love is that we walk in knowing the science. We don't have to be the expert that they are, but we need to bring the expertise of in the industry, the mm-hmm. industry knowledge. In. I and mean, we have 10 writers, three of them are PhD level writers. There's a reason for that. You um, don't well, have to is, explain
0: the acronyms, right?
3: You're, you're no, exactly. <laughs> you, know, you don't have to say, what does LIMS stand for? I you mean, know, or what does uh, and, DGNT and stand for? I think that's really important. I think yeah. that's really important because it, it cuts down the time of onboarding. Yeah.
2: No, actually, this is partly why I wanted to give you guys the space to sort of make that case very clearly. And the next question is the one question I actually wanted you guys to answer for me, not necessarily the audience. And that's, In the last five to 10 years, how has getting messages effectively out changed? Like, So I'll start with you, Deb.
3: Okay, so we have lots of new digital formats. Some of this, you'd say five years ago we had this, but think back 10 years ago, we didn't have this. So there's a lot more around social media, definitely LinkedIn, Twitter, um, the ball is still out on that right now. Mm -hmm. But I mean, we still claim the space for our clients. Certainly podcasts and videos, that really came to its own during the pandemic. I mean, it just, it was more time to do it and it worked better. There's search ads, both display and AdWords. There's digital ads that, and by using some tools like marketing automation platforms, we're able to give our clients almost better real time analysis of what's working and what's not. We get to do a little more A-B testing than we've ever had. So it's the key for us is making sure it's done in a very integrated approach, right? We have all these new tools. We have all these social media tools. We have blogs. We have content. Certainly content is king. It's always been king, but even more so now. But content on multiple formats. It can't just be the written word because people don't have time. I had someone ask me, can you take your blog and, and make it a, a, a podcast and not like an audio book? And we're in the process of working on that. So that's definitely a thing. Because- Great. That's what people want, they want to be able to listen, so the key is making sure that as an agency part of this what's new is how do I get from an MQL to an SQL you've got to show ROI. So it's about using all these tools intelligently it's about working with an agency that understands the tools keeps up on the tools and all the technology that come out and brings it all in we've done a lot with publications on retargeting it's been a great asset for our clients.
2: We're all nodding. Uh, Beth.
0: You know, um, so you mentioned the MQL and the SQL. I think that's what's changed really over the past five years. We didn't have to be looking towards marketing qualified leads or sales qualified leads when I first started. I mean, geez, I was still clipping stuff out of, you know, actual magazines. You know, print was king when I started and then we moved into this digital transition and we were really following that semiconductor trail of, you know, things going digital and then certain publications going away. This industry didn't see the call of publications, but this industry is really struggling with how to optimize those marketing automation platforms and leverage their content because they're either going in one direction so far where they don't do anything or they're doing way too much. And they're trying to just analyze everything down to the little nth degree. And I think that there's an element of brand and culture and communication and just teaching people about what you do why it's interesting no sell none whatsoever this is what i do it's super cool take it leave it whatever works for you i'm i think that at the same time that we have all of these powerful tools we're also trying to expect too much from them and almost like taking away some of that human element because for me what i've always loved is reaching out to the editors and creating the relationships and you know working with different customers and stuff and uh, it still exists but it's definitely different. Pitching is harder. Getting content placed is much harder. Most publications want to go directly into paid, And that used to not be how it was before. You used to do a lot more free negotiation. And then you have some companies that are spending way more and then other companies who are chopping. So it's like the trend, it's hard to say like what the actual trend is. It's here, there and everywhere. And it's a lot more chaotic than I think it was five years ago. Maybe that's not positive, but that's that's how I feel.
3: But it's, it's also that you used, what was the rule six to eight times you had to hear things? Six, now it's to 16 yeah. Right? Yeah. But you have Way so more. much
0: more. You're fighting so much more for that ear, you know, for that, that share of voice. And, uh, yeah. you know, there's certain companies, I won't say it because this is recorded, but there's one company in this industry that they talk so much, they're talking over themselves constantly. Every day I have something in my inbox. Every day there's something... You have to, there has to be a a point of, okay, we're talking to you, but we're not like word vomiting on you. What am I supposed to pay attention to? I've got so many emails and so much stuff, and you're coming at me every single day, sometimes three, four times a day. That's crazy. That's crazy. We don't, (laughs) we want to do just enough. (laughs) And to Deb's point, that's what these tools can give you. They can show you what are people reading, where are you getting those conversions, but you're never ever going to be able to say, It was that tweet. That was the tweet, and we have to stop pretending like it's going to be that because it's not. It's just well,
3: and we're back to that. Fourteen to sixteen times they need to hear it. So which tweet? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) right. Exactly.
0: Companies really need to understand how to use press releases today. Don't don't put out a press release just to put it out. Nobody cares that you unless it's a very prestigious award. Nobody cares that you won that award. Nobody cares you're going to an event. Nobody cares that like so and so sneezed. And uh, I see, and then they're so long. It's like two pages what is going on here so you know just like do enough and listen to the audience what do they want from you
2: yeah i won't shock everybody by telling how many press releases i didn't read last year
3: i (laughs) I know i know we did a whole series on what you write a press release about because
2: oh i read that i saw that actually yeah yeah.
3: people want to write a press release on oh we had an anniversary i think it's way you had an anniversary but yeah right i mean what happened
0: did you open a new facility did like something magically appear in the sky like it it could be a press release if something else happens and i and that was actually a really good blog i read that one Um, you know it's just it's crazy how many do you get a day
2: oh this i didn't read twenty thousand last year (gasps) yeah so I saved myself and I I, I tried to work out if it was 0.2 of a second per one scanning through how long that would uh, I gave up because I'm like yeah yeah. 20,000 that's insane that's
1: a
4: lot
2: Kevin
4: yeah I I think I've been you know in the marketing space in, in this area for a long time I remember the first one of the first ads I ran I was sending film into your one of your publications so back in the day. So it's changed a lot. I mean, there's a lot more controls, a lot less bandwidth of where to be seen. And now with, you know, the shift to digital and online, I think it's changed everything. And now the problem is there's, as you said, there's too much 20,000 news releases being released. And how do you get that? How do you get that focus to the right people? And again, I think, you know, some of these tools and AI and these other things are going to help us to continue to be more personalized and be able to more, be more customized. I think some of the programs we're looking at, we're, we're just saying, just we cut it down and focus on the ones that we, we spend the time qualifying that we know are the right targets as opposed to trying to be out there with everything with customers sometimes. Um, and it's the same. I do see the same thing where there's, you know, companies are still trying to, I want to put out two news releases a month, regardless of whether there's anything to talk about um, newsletters is the same, the same thing again. So yes. you, said you, you burn your, you burn your credibility with them, with the people mm-hmm. that are consuming it, because if you're giving them garbage, they're not going to come back and read it when it is important. So either have a lot of really important stuff. If you want to have that kind of tempo or find other different channels and different things that you can get out there that are meaningful for the customers that, that'll really help them. That if it's good content, people will engage with it. You can get it out. I mean, people like Chris, if if he gets to read one of those 20,000, that's, you know, something that's, that's, that's actually good, you know, maybe, maybe that's the thing that, that'll get, get seen. So I think it's about quality and understanding the customers, again, thats a, that segmentation and the personalization idea of really understanding what's important to the customers, what, what's really critical. And then the shotgun approach probably, you know, with the internet, that means it can be global. Every person on the planet can almost see things. So h- how do we focus on on the right people?
3: It's really hard to get them to understand when a press release is of value when it's not a value. Even having press events, if you don't have anything to talk about, it's not a good idea to have a press event. I mean, it's got to be about... Some, something major that's a value but it's got to be it's training them that it's not just a value to you it has to be a value to the editor i mean as pr professionals we walk a really thin line we walk we walk the line of taking care of our clients but we have to take care of the press too i'm not going to lob something over to chris and he's going to be like deborah what are you sending me it's of zero value if we don't send them something that has true meaning to it so I think the, the key is making it's that really fine line of of what's important for both the client and the press
2: actually part of the reason why i wanted to have your perspective is also to reinforce that it's still a people-based industry yes and you still have to have the trust of whoever you're dealing with uh, that you're gonna as not waste their time so that's an element we are running out of time so yeah uh, so we didn't touch conferences which is something i was going to bring up but we can potentially schedule another.
3: That would be great.
2: Yeah. So in the last little bit, just sort of final thoughts, and you can include conferences or not if you want to, but um, I had a, I, I made my living out of running conferences, and I've noticed that there's still a place for the very large ones because you sort of have to be seen to be there. But effectively, there's got to be a better way for conferences to deliver for the time and energy and actually bodily putting yourself on the line by traveling across the country, that kind of thing. But anyway, just a quick parting thought from each of you. And again, we'll start with you, Deb. I
3: think there's, I think we've all come out of this with a knowledge that we need our clients. And when clients are looking for an agency, you need to work with one that understands the industry, has the industry knowledge, has the capabilities. You know, Brainwave Solutions looks at it from a very holistic approach. So we're, since we're a full service marketing agency, Try to tie all the pieces together in a very integrated way. And I think that it's really important that you you work with somebody that can speak the language. I mean, our tagline is we speak science for a reason, because people get that. They understand, okay, I don't have to explain an acronym to them, or I don't have to, I am not going to be the expert in what they make, but I certainly can understand what they do. And, and we don't, we know the industry super well for that. But I think that's really important. Uh, the tagline, the end piece about the conferences, I think that's a, that's another bigger conversation to, to weed into. But um, I want to make sure I give enough time for Beth and for Kevin as well.
2: Well, I don't want to editorialize, but I would add to yours context and perspective. That's one of the things I find valuable talking to you. You give me the context and perspective to, to weigh things. So, uh, Beth?
3: You know, I'll
0: go in on the events just real quick. I think that um, I mean, you guys are probably all familiar. Rizwan does a nice little Rizwan Chowdhury does a nice list every year that I look for. If you, I'll share it with you, he always like has all of those. But there's um, you know, there's events that I'm very familiar with. There's events that I'm not familiar with. And when you hear about events, it's very clear what works and what doesn't based on if you talk to salespeople for like five minutes. What was the floor like? What were your? I'm telling clients, cut, 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 cut. Why do you need to go do a big booth and everything? If you're not getting the value out of it, just send a person to the show. If you don't even like sending a person to the show, then don't. And I think that that's really gonna make the events kind of start to realize, okay, well, if we're having dropping attendance or if we're getting attendees but not booths and we used to get booths, that something needs to change. They're Mm -hmm. so overlapped. I mean, this year it was insane. There was like three or four shows going on at the same time, multiple times. Usually they're better about that. So this is going to, I think we're going to see a call in events because it's just not possible. And it's so expensive. And also we're trying to be better about the environment. You're flying across the globe. I don't know. I still see a lot of value in them. I just don't think there's a value
2: in all of them.
4: And Kevin? All right. Um, yeah, just on conferences again, I I think in the old days they used to, um, it was the way that you found suppliers. It's the way you found people and interfaced. I think a lot of that's gone with, you can look on the internet. There's no need to, to do that in most cases. And you see that with the tenants and the people that are actually going to a lot of the conferences, it's really reduced to some key people. It's smaller and smaller pool from each company that goes. So I think, I think it's still important to have that human face-to-face interaction. I don't think we've lost that in humanity yet. That's really important to have some of those meetings with people, but again, it's for the right context. And what are you trying to achieve with those meetings? You know, one of the things as an agency yeah, I just wanted to leave with is, you know, one of the other things is perspective. I know, being an outside party when you're dealing with companies, they have this internal perspective a lot of times on what's important and what's not. And then you ask them the so what question. What? So what does that mean to the market? How do How do you make money? How, does, how is this important to an editor? And those are the kinds of questions, the hard questions sometimes you have to ask a customer that thinks this is super important. And to be able to help them to, to this is the important part of what you guys do and we want to get this part of it out there. So I think that's one of the things that we do as an outside Partners is being understanding of enough of the science to be able to make those kinds of provide that help and support, but, but making sure that the the company doesn't get too lost in the weeds in itself and looking at a, a bigger, broader perspective and dealing with a bunch of different companies as, as we all do, you know, you learn a lot about different aspects of the industry and how the market kind of responds to messaging and, and the kind of information that they want to absorb. So I think that's the value that gets them outside of themselves a little bit more and combining that with the expertise really helps them. Yeah.
2: Perfect. So that's a good way to end the expertise. I, I actually look at agencies as experienced guides, like a alpinist, you, which area is treacherous, which is the peak you want to be climbing. You know, I've climbed plenty of peaks in my life where you don't get a view from the top because it's all treed in or whatever. So I want to thank you guys for spending the time today. Uh, encourage the audience to reach out to you guys. I know you're all very helpful, friendly people. So Deb, Beth, Kevin. Appreciate your time and let's all stay in touch and have a great 2023.
3: Thank you, Chris. We appreciate it. You as well. Have a good day.
2: Cheers,
4: everybody.
1: Thank you to our editors and experts for sharing their insights. Stay tuned for future episodes of the drug solutions podcast with the pharmaceutical technology editors. If you want to stay in touch with the pharmaceutical technology team, subscribe to this podcast, as well as to our e-newsletters. When you sign up for our newsletters, you will be updated about future episodes of drug solutions, receive our magazines, learn about upcoming webinars and hear about episodes of drug digest. Thanks to everyone for joining us for this episode of the Drug Solutions Podcast.